himself of no reputation, that he could reach those of us of humiliation and bring us to glorification. You like that? <laughs> In my past, uh, we, I like to hear when I talk to people about their Christian experience and why they hold some of the views they do and some of the discussions that were very important in their life. And there was a time a number of years ago where we, I was working with a fellow who I really enjoy working with him, but he did not hold a very high view of Jesus. And so this spawned discussions, debates at work. found myself often defending the deity of Jesus and who he was. And during that time, though at the time it bothered me because I was, I, I'm not, I don't really enjoy debate. Some people thrive in that. I do not enjoy debate. But I did, am very thankful for the challenge it gave me to study the scriptures about who Jesus is. And so I explored the scriptures about that. And I was blown away about the reality that the scriptures tell us about who Jesus really was. And I want to tell you about a few of those today. The Apostle John made some of the most profound statements in regards to the nature of Christ. If you read the Gospel of John, you're going to get some of this. In John 1, we're told that he is the living word, that the word is God, that he is the light and life of men, that he was the avenue of creation. Nothing was made without him that was made. In John 5, we are told that he is equal with the Father. He's worthy of the same honor as the Father. Those who honor the Son honor the Father. In John 8, Jesus calls himself the I Am. That's a pretty big statement, calling himself the I Am. And in John 10, Jesus says that he and the Father are one. What a significant statement. In John 12, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in John 14, that's a pretty big chapter on this. First, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he reveals his eternal unity with the Father to say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then I'll go on to Revelation, as we were discussing this morning during Sunday school. He's called the Almighty. What statements about Jesus? And John's not the only one that tells us about the nature of Jesus. Hebrews 1, he tells us that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. He was the full realization of God in the world. We see this magnificent picture painted of who Jesus is and how glorious he is and, and how, how he's eternal and how he's over the universe. And, and Paul, Paul's also another big writer on this about who Jesus was. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the believers there that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In Colossians 1, Paul makes some pretty profound statements. He says that Jesus resides over all creation, all principalities and powers. He is over all. That he was before creation. He was the source and avenue of creation. And he even says that Jesus holds it together. And in him all things consist. That's what that means is he holds it all together. And that all creation will find its consummation in him. One day, creation, as we know it, has its end. And guess who's at the end of that journey? Jesus. And then he tells us that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. This is just pieces of some of the things that the New Testament tells us about Jesus. And if you read through the Old Testament, you get even a bigger picture about how, who Jesus was and is 
and who will continue to be. And it paints this beautiful picture of Jesus' glory. And the Bible saturated with these uh, pictures and ideas and portraits of who Jesus is. And Bible students love it there. Theologians love it there. We love to talk about the majesty of Jesus. We love to live there in the majestic, the eternal, the glorious, the exalted place of Jesus of Jesus and God's plan. We, we love to live there. In fact, I believe that's one of the reasons they would build these ivory towers and they would go and they would study and they would just meditate on the eternality and the infinite nature of God and his plan and who Jesus was. Even today, we have exalted institutions that they explore these realities. We love to live there as theologians and Bible students. We love to live in that reality who Jesus is. And we, some people have given their entire lives to trying to understand the glories of this reality. But those things are so amazing, and they are great, and they're wonderful. But there's something else that really just why I love Jesus. What makes Jesus so amazing is that even though he is all those things, he revealed, to him, he revealed himself to us in the most personal, relatable, and humble ways. Now, when you start realizing, when we start realizing everything that Jesus is and how far he came to be like us, that we could have a relationship with him, that's what makes it so amazing. We were reading this morning um, in uh, Sunday school in Revelation, and I'm going to read this passage to you, starting in verse 13. And it says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about with a paps with a golden girdle. His head, was, and his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were of a flame of fire, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And I'm going to stop there because that is a glorious Christ, isn't it? But here comes the amazing part. Because right there, I mean, we see the, the sheer brilliance of who Jesus is. And John had a proper response. He fell down before him as dead. But here's the amazing thing. And he laid his right hand uh, upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Even though he's this glorious Savior, this, this, he shines in his strength, like the sun shines in strength, he's bright and glorious, he still reaches down and puts his hand on John and says, Fear not. That's the kind of Savior that we have a relationship with. That's who he's willing to do. In Philippians 2, we read about what Jesus really did when he came and he gives us, he tells the believers to have this mind. He goes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in, the fa in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the time, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of the things of heaven and the things on, in earth 
and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, in his glory, did not hold on to that glory, but stepped down and made himself of no reputation. And in our, in our family devotions, we are right now in the, in the uh, first epistle of John, First John, and we just finished the gospel of John. We're in this epistle, and John starts off. Now, he's, there's a whole bunch of context behind this, but what I love about how John handles the beginning of this, of his letter, is John is one of the most profound speakers on who Jesus is, the nature of who Jesus is. And how does he begin this letter to the believers? He begins this letter with the believers with this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. There, the, all those amazing realities that John tells us and Paul tells and the scripture shows about who Jesus is, some of the most amazing things is the fact that he said, and we could see him. That we heard him with our ears. We touched him with our hands. We experienced God on a level that no one has ever in the world been able to experience God because God made himself relatable to us. He, God came down in flesh that we could have a relationship with him. And that's some of the, some of the other re, the amazing realities of Jesus. I, I wonder if John, when he wrote this, thought of the times that he stood with Jesus and that he walked with Jesus and they conversed with Jesus and they worked, walked on journeys together. I wonder if he recalled the voice of Jesus speaking, knowing who he was and that he spoke. In verse 2, it says that the life was manifested, and we have seen it, manifested meaning revealed, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto us. This was eternal life which was with the Father for all eternity. Yet when it was revealed to mankind, we could all relate about with who he was. So the amazing part about Jesus is not just he's so glorious, but that glory was wrapped in flesh that we could have a relationship with him. In verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What I love about this is nobody has ever been in a place that they could achieve or come up to God or even fathom who God is. And yet, God made himself, not only could they see him, hear him, but he could be embraced. When he says our hands have touched he could be embraced. That is one of the most amazing ideas that blows my mind. This is eternal, glorious God who revealed himself to Jesus, made himself in such a way that us as people can embrace him and that he embraces us, which is just as astounding. And you know, when I was, um, I went, went to Bible college and I've heard lots of sermons and I've preached lots of sermons. We, we, we're really good at telling people how glorious God is and that he, how, how different he is from us and how holy he is. And, that, and that, all that's very true. And that he's, that he's so far from who we are. And that there's no way that anyone could ever reach up and reach who he was or touch him. And yet John tells us that God wants to be. God wants people to be in relationship with him. This holy God, this, this God that is so different, so righteous and so glorious, wants to be in relationship with people. So much so that he sent his only son to die for us. 
He wants to be. The kingdom of God is at hand. We've heard that preached. Jesus said that. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. You can just reach out and touch it. And you know the thing is, is how do you embrace the God of the universe, this vast creator who created the universe? How do you embrace him? You embrace him through Jesus. And this relationship, though, is not just for us to hoard to ourselves, but declare so others could also share in this relationship. He says that. He says our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. We have eternal life. Won't you come and have life too? That's one thing that I love about this because God really is so different and we're so sinful that we don't deserve it. But yet God desires to be in relationship with people. He wants to be embraced. He wants to have that relationship. It's within reach. If we're willing to let go, of, if people want to let go of their pride and sin and willing to embrace his offer of forgiveness and relationship. So one of the things that I so love about Jesus, when I was studying and debating about who Jesus was and the magnificence of who Jesus was and his eternality and his deity and all that, sometimes we skip over the, path, the, the fact that Jesus stepped down because of people. So when you look around you and you see people all around you, God wants to be in relationship with people who don't know him. And if he's willing to step on earth as a man and humble himself, we should be willing to share him with others that they also might have a relationship with the eternal God of the universe. So um, I'm going to take prayer requests, and I'm going to ask Ryan, is he in here? Did I miss him? No? Okay. Am I missing him? He's in the kitchen. Okay. Will you pray for us? Okay. All right. Uh, what prayer request do we have this morning? Yes. My uncle was diagnosed with cancer a couple weeks ago, and they knew he needed to go to the hospital for palliative care. Okay. Any other prayer requests? Just remember all of the people that are in general conference today in Kansas. Some of you may know Gordon and Marsha Jamison, and Marsha fell this morning in the somewhere on the grounds, and she was taken to the hospital. So let's remember uh, Marsha Jamison. Also, like to express the continued uh, prayer for our son Tim. Uh, he was in surgery last week, um, preparation for uh, radiation and chemotherapy, and uh, he'll begin that radiation and chemotherapy this week for the next seven weeks. Hmm. Any others? Will you pray for us?
morning, and we welcome you this morning. Thank you for coming. We thank, appreciate each one that's here. And we want to uh, dwell in some unusual places today. We'd like to invite you to open up into the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. We're going to get there in just a moment. But I also was thinking in, in the book of Titus. So hold your place there in Isaiah 54. <clears throat> thank you. Over in the book of Titus, uh, there's been some other areas here we've been meditating on, and we came across a phrase in the book of Titus, which is a short book. So in chapter 1 and chapter 3, we're going to see a phrase that says, in hope of eternal life. We'll take that as a title today, in hope of eternal life. It says that in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. That's all part of God's purposes. And it's so exciting that we've started now to study the book of Revelation and our Sunday school classes because we're going to see God's purposes being laid out, bringing this world to an end and bringing all of eternity in, into being and uh, in, in that will become a reality to us and that this world will, will stop and will go into the next world. So in hope of eternal life there, but also in chapter 3 at verse 7, it says that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's how we become the inheritors of God, and it's going to be through eternal life. There's also another hope mentioned here in chapter 2, verse 13. It says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have that hope of his return coming back to this world to finish the things of this world, and then we will become heirs of all that he has planned for us because of, et of eternal life. So our hope of eternal life <clears throat> is something that we dwell on, we think about, uh, and it's more, it's deeper than just a uh, sort of a hopefulness about eternal life. It's not just that I, well, I hope someday that that happens, and I hope all that comes true, and I hope the Bible is true. No, we know that these things are true. It's an assured thing. But I'd like to also explain a little bit about hope, because the word hope is used a lot in the New Testament, and it always comes from one word, one little Greek word, elpis, and it means several things. But hope, in reference to eternal life or in anything where it's being talked about in the New Testament, Hope is referring to things, it's a favorable and confident expectation. So you're resting in an expectation. God said it, I believe it, it's going to happen, these things are going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen or how it's all going to come about, but these things are true and it's sure, and we can have a favorable and a confident expectation of that. Another, th another thought about hope is this, it is always referenced to the unseen things and the future things, so we're not quite sure what all is going to be there. So it's somewhere out there, but we still have that confident expectation about it. And the third significance of, of how it's used in the New Testament is the happy anticipation of good. So it's an expectation, but it's also an anticipation of that looking for, expecting, waiting upon the things that God has said is going to happen. So we have a hope of eternal life. And the things that happen in, in eternal life are going to be quite different than where, the, where we are right now because we still live in a world that is completely warped by sin. But God has plans to end this world 
and to bring about something that's quite different. Now, this is where we want to go to Isaiah chapter 54 and dwell in this chapter just a little bit. You may not have read this chapter before, or you may have forgotten because it kind of gets lost in all of Isaiah and so forth. But what's right ahead of chapter 54, chapter 53? And what's in chapter 53? There you have a prophetic understanding, a prophetic picture of Jesus the Christ being crucified. You're going through all the suffering that he did when he died upon the cross for you and I. All of that is laid out clearly in Isaiah 53. And then we come to Isaiah 54. Let's spend some time here in Isaiah 54. I'm going to try to take it in little segments. <clears throat> and uh, So let's begin just in the first three verses here. Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. So there's a word picture here being created of speaking to the, that woman, that, that image of a person who never was able to bear children, that they would break out in singing. So already something is changing. And this whole chapter is going to be the great contrast, the great comparison of how the kind of life that you've been living, the kind of history that you have, and how different it's going to be when you get into the millennial kingdom and we get on into eternal life. So he starts out, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud that thou that didst not travail with, with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not. Now he's going into this description here. He's saying he's already made this incredible statement. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. Now that doesn't make a bit of sense at all in this world. But in the world to come, and you, and you picture this as not beyond children, it's beyond, it goes on into the fruitfulness of your life, is going to be way more then you can even imagine. You've been living in a desolate, a barren kind of environment and a history, but it's going to change. It's going to be so incredibly different and fruitful. And he goes on and gives this expanded word picture. You take the tent that you're living in, well, you just expand it. You put the stakes out farther. You put on, you, in our reference, we would build on rooms. We'd build on extra buildings. We'd go hallways out to expand this and, and go beyond on extra floors and so forth. He said, don't spare anything on it. Your life, there's going to be such a fruitfulness that is going to explode that we can't even begin to even understand it because of all the barrenness that we've been living in. But it's going to change. <clears throat> so he elaborates this. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. And in that last phrase is where we think this, this ha there's some reference here to the millennial kingdom. A reference is here, the idea of this fruitfulness that's going to break out is going to be the, the time when all, all nations are going to be uh, inherited or taken by God's believing people, essentially. Now, there's a lot of things that refer specifically to Israel here, but I, I like to think that we can also, as 
believers in Jesus Christ that we are receiving these blessings as well, and we're going to be a part of this. But here's in this picture when it talks about and make the desolate cities to be inhabited, there's a picture that comes directly out of the millennial kingdom that there's going to be people living upon the earth and they're going to people, they're going to fill these cities, these nations that they have inherited that are still upon the earth for a thousand years. So that it kind of puts it in a unique little time frame. And there's other things that kind of make it sound like it's moving on beyond the millennial kingdom as well. But that's what it's talking about here, is to be able to inherit or to inherit all, all nations and to people those places that are, had been inhabited and now is being inhabited in the thousand-year reign. So let's go on to verse 4 here. Because now he said, he's just one verse. He says, fear not. For thou shalt not be ashamed, neither shalt thou be confounded. And there's three words right there that describe where you and I live today. We live in a world that is, has a lot of fear. We live in a world that a lot of people are confounded, that are experiencing shame. <clears throat> and they are put to shame. You're going to forget, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. This is the kind of world that you've been living in, a world that you experience shame, you experience rejection, you experience the reproach of, of widowhood, you experience being just tortured in your mind. Of, I don't know how, how to put this all day. I don't know how to think. I can't get on top of these things. I'm overwhelmed by the pressures of this life. That's the kind of life you've been in, but don't fear. It's going to change. It's going to be so completely different. There's going to be a fruitfulness that's going to break out in your life. And all these things that have so burdened you and, and held you down are going to be done away with. Then he tells us why in verses 5 through 8. Here is, is an amazing word picture beginning with the phrase, For thy maker is thine husband. This chapter has puzzled me for several months, and I've been debating whether to even bring it to a sermon or not, but I, I couldn't, uh, could not do it because of that phrase, for thy maker is thy husband. What a word picture that God has, has created for us, for us to be, able to, to be able to read this and understand this, that the one who created us, the God, the forever God, the all-powerful God, who created us, also wants to be considered our husband. Now, there's many places in the Bible where you get this picture that the church is the bride of Christ, and there's a lot of imagery attached to that. And then in the book of Revelation, you get the picture that the, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb when the, when, the, when the Lamb himself wants to come, and he wants to be at this marriage supper of the, final, the time when his whole church, his whole his whole believing body that has been purified and made white is going to come. He's going to marry his bride. But here is, is right here in the Old Testament is that thought being projected here that your maker, the one who created you, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord has called you. Let's, let's stop there for just a moment. <clears throat> these titles that are given to the Lord God himself, 
an amazing. He is our Redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the God of the entire earth. And He wants to be my husband. The one who made me wants to be in that kind of relationship. This is starting to lay out the picture here of the extreme love that God, the Father, Jesus Christ has for you and I, personally and, and as a group, but personally, the kind of love that he has, like a husband has for his wife, is applied to God here. And, and God created all this. He created man, he created woman, he created marriage. All those things are part of God's plan. And then he said, I want you to be able to think about me in reference to this married relationship so that you could understand it, so we could get a grip on it, so we could begin to understand the extreme nature and the depth of nature of his love toward us and for us. And that's why Jesus came into the world, because of the love that he had for the people of the world. Well, let's go on, and he describes in how it was that he called us. Verse 6, For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, that when thou wast, re when thou wast refused, saith God. And what he's describing there is that he said, When I called you, you were experiencing the depths of rejection and shame and, reject, and just all of the, the things that, that, that sin has done to this world and done to the people of this world. And that's where Jesus calls us from. That's where he's called us out of. He's putting it into a word picture here that is like a woman who's been forsaken or been divorced or been abandoned and grieving in her spirit or, or like a young wife who was simply rejected and refused and pushed away. And you were, you were shattered like that. And yet God said, I called you because I want you to be my wife. <clears throat> For a small moment have I forsaken thee. Now he's going to make several descriptions here about small moment and a short time. But let's, let's try to understand what he's referring to here. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. Now, wait a minute. Did he just say that? For a little moment... I forsook you. Let, let's expand on it a little bit. But with great mercies will I gather you. So he's saying there was a small time, a short period of time, when I did forsake you, but with tremendous love I'm going to gather you in. Now he's going to repeat that in a little different way. In a little wrath, a little wrath, that's a hard one to quite understand. God talking about in his wrath, in all of his overwhelming anger and his wrath, but it was just a little, just for a short time, just a moment. He says, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. And as I tried to understand this, tried to do some reading and, and expand on that a little bit, it, you could put this into the context. When you think about Israel, that for 400 years they were slaves in Egypt because of their sin and their unbelief. There were 70 years that they were enslaved in Babylon because of their sin and their unbelief. But in light of eternity, that's a little moment when God let that happen turned his face from them, turned his back on them, 
because of, the, because of sin and unbelief. But we can take that directly to you and I and take it directly to the cross, I think. There was a moment on the cross after Jesus had been there for several hours and he finally, <clears throat> he is calling out to the Father and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, God turned his face away. He pulled away from Jesus Christ because of sin and unbelief that was overwhelming upon Jesus Christ for you and I. In that little moment, God said there was a moment. For you and I, it was that moment on the cross where Jesus was carrying everything for you and I and God turned his face away from him and from us. But with great mercy... I'm going to gather you in with steadfast kindness. It says in other, other variations, other versions here, it talks about the steadfast love that's not going to depart, this everlasting love and this great compassion that I have for you. Yes, there was a moment when I turned away from you. But there is an amazing, overwhelming love that drives me to call you back to me. And, and all the shame and all the rejection that you've went through doesn't have to be that way for eternity. Because I got a plan for you. I got a plan to bring you. I want you to be my wife. And the bride, the church is called the bride. Because that's God's plan. That's, the, that's a description of his love for you and I. Verse 9 and 10 together here. Because this, he says that this, uh, God says, you know, th this whole thing reminds me of the covenant that I made with Noah. So let, here's how he's going to describe it here. Verse 9, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. God is saying unto me. This reminds me of the time when the Noah's flood was over and that I made a covenant with Noah and with all people. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth or be angry with thee, nor rebuke thee. God has made a covenant with us for that. Because of belief in him and because of his, his eternal, because of his salvation that he's created for us, there's, he will not continue to rebuke us or to be angry with us because all that's been taken care of. For the mountains shall be depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart, which is a steadfast love from thee. But neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. <clears throat> For God, it's a covenantal thing. That's why we talk about covenant and marriage as well. It's a covenant thing. That there is no end to God's love that is driving him to give us the means of salvation and to bring this world to an end. And he's got things planned for us that are so far beyond our imagination, both in the millennial thousand-year kingdom, but also in the, in the eternity to come because of his love, and his, he sees that as a, as a covenant, a deep covenant of his steadfast love for you and I. Verses 11 and 12, he's talking about those that are afflicted. He said, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates and the gates, thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. What an amazing 
contrast in those few sentences. It says, you, the one who is living in this world that's so corrupted by sin, you've been, you live, live a life in, in tempest and there's no comfort in it, but there's going to come a day when it's going to change so dramatically and you're going to be in a place that is of astounding beauty that you cannot even begin to imagine. Of all the, what we call gemstones because of their rarity is going to be the building materials of the place that we will be in in heaven. And he tells us here that he's going to lay all those stones with fair colors. And I've wondered about that phrase, fair colors, before. And I looked this into another, in another translation, and it said, I will lay your stones with antimony. Well, that didn't help a bit. What in the world does fair colors mean? What does antimony mean? Does some of you have a translation that says antimony there at that point? I see a couple heads shaking there. So we had to look at what is antimony? Antimony is number 51 on the periodic table of elements. But what is antimony? Antimony is a silvery white metalloid, which means it's not quite a metal, it's not quite a crystal. It's very brittle, but when you, it's always used in alloys. It's a rare earth mineral that's used in alloys, and then when you mix it with another metal, it makes it harder. Even though in itself it's just a, like a, a breakable crystal, but when you mix it with something else, it makes it grit much harder, and it allows it to conduct. Uh, it's a part of semiconductors in, in electronics and so forth. It's one of those rarer things. And it also creates fireproofness. And so here he's saying that all these beautiful stones, we're going to set your stone. Do you think about a ring? See, the, you talk about a ring on your hand or a piece of jewelry. You're setting a gem. You're setting it in a, in a, into the setting. It has to be surrounded, it has to be nestled in something. And these stones that are the structure of heaven and the structure of the new Jerusalem are set in antimony, in a, this, this sense of, of metal, this sense of beauty, this sense of hardness, this sense of conductivity, this, the sense of fireproofness. It cannot dissolve, it cannot be torn down, it cannot be burned up in any way. It's a forever place. And in the, the windows that are there, the gates that are there, the walls, the foundations, everything is going to be of the things that we call the precious gemstones because they're so rare to us, but they're going to be what heaven is built out of. <clears throat> Verse 13 and 14 talks about the, your children, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come to thee. And there's a, it's like a promise there. It's another part of God's covenant to us. Not only is it going to be a beautiful place, it's going to be a place where God is going to personally teach your children, and that all children are going to be taught by God in this, in this situation. And there should be, it's going to be a, a great peace for all of your children. There's going to be righteousness there because you, you're going to be so far away from how it used to be. But how it used to be, which is today's world, this is today's headlines. It mentions oppression. It mentions terror. It mentions fear. Those things are far away and they will not come near to you. All the things that oppress us and create fear and anxiety in the world that we live in is going to be completely away from where you'll be in life everlasting.
Verse 15, 16, and 17. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. And let's just reword that just a little bit. Whoever creates strife against you. That's what this gathering together against you means. Whoever is creating strife, creating a fight, creating a, a difficulty against you. <clears throat> it, doesn't, it wasn't something that comes from God. But whoever does that, whoever creates that strife or comes against you, they shall fall for thy sake. Because you are the bride of the God who created all things. Now, this is not exactly the way life is right now. But this whole chapter is about the contrast of how different it's going to be when fear and oppression and all those things are, are completely away from you. And there won't be anyone coming against you and creating strife and creating hatred and creating attacks of some kind. Verse 16, Behold, I have created the smith, which refers to a blacksmith, that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I've created the waster to destroy. <clears throat> These two verses, 16 and 7, have been some of the most puzzling things to me. What is he really talking about here? But he said one, he had one word in there, two words, I have created. That's three words, I guess. I have created, okay, God is making a claim here. He said, I've, I have made many things. He made all of the world. He made us. But he's also made the blacksmith. He gave, made the skills of the blacksmith. He made the ability given to men to mine ore and to make metal and to put that, put that metal into the extreme heat of a furnace and be able to hammer that and to create a tool out of that. And a tool can also be a weapon. In the next verse, we're going to hear about weapon here. That's why we're referring to that. <clears throat> but he says, I created that. This wasn't a man-made thing. It wasn't a, a man-made gimmick of some kind. It wasn't just because of men's thinking and their technology, and they're so able to build weapons and build things. He says, I made it. I made the skill to do that, to make things, to create things. And at the same time, I have created the waster. To destroy, which I think is references to, to, to Satan, the one that, that is so active in this world that wants to destroy people, that wants to destroy things, that wants to destroy systems, and, it, and we just waste things and waste people's lives. But God also created Satan. I created the waster. I created the ability to create tools and weapons, and I created the waster. And so all of those things that would come against you are not going to overtake you. In the next verse, he explains it. He says, no weapon that is formed against thee, that's by the blacksmith, that's by the, the technology that builds the systems, that builds the war machines, or whatever it is, whatever kind of weapon it is that is coming against, it says, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue, this is the tongue of the waster here, making accusations against you. And every tongue that shall arise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn, or you're going to refute it, or any kind of argument that comes at you, or any kind of discussion, 
you're going to be able to refute that and, and, be, and be, do away with it because God created the smith and he created the accuser, the waster. All of that is within God's created ability and his, and his power over it. This, he concludes, is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. <clears throat> In that last phrase there, he said, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. <clears throat> this is where we're going. All of the things that are troubling you, that are overcoming you, that are victimizing you, and all the oppression and the fear and the anger and all that stuff that comes about you is going to be completely done away with because God created it. He can also do away with it. And you're going to come to a place that will be so far away from that and so far different and beyond our imagination as to how beautiful and how really amazing it's going to be. But that's a heritage. That's what, that is the plan. That is the inheritance, the thing that God wants us to inherit because we're the bride of Christ and all those that believe in him. <clears throat> last week in our Sunday school lesson in the last chapter in Ephesians, it was talking about the, the putting on the whole armor of God. And that wakened such a, an understanding that, that we think about putting on the whole armor of God, but the reality is that God is... God made the armor. It says the whole armor of God. It's his armor that he created for us. It's not just that we're so able to put on the armor and fight with it. It's his armor. And he, puts it, he wraps it around us because he loves us. And he puts us in that kind of place that while you're going through all the fear and the oppression and the anger and all the things that come at you and the strife and so forth, you do have an armor to help you through all of that. But there'll come a day when you won't even need the armor of God. Because you're going to be in a completely different place. Because God loves us so much. He wants to have a close husband-wife relationship with us. And it's a covenant thing in his heart. It's never going to go away. It's never going to come a time when he'll get tired and pitch us out. God will always love us through eternity. I'd like to finish, though, in John chapter 6. Let's go back in the New Testament briefly. John chapter 6, because Jesus was, it's always fascinating to have Jesus Christ being quoted from his perspective as God and a man standing on the earth, and they could hear his words, and he's describing things about eternal life or about the kingdom of heaven. And here in John chapter 6, we just pick it up. Um, Verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. There's, there's the, our eternal God. He said, that everyone that comes to me, there is no way, no way under heaven or earth or eternity that I'm going to cast you out. For I, come da I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. He's going to make two statements here about the Father's will. Which ha, the Father's will, which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus Christ standing upon the earth, thinking about the last day of earth. The last day of time. 
the last day of the physical earth, the last day of sin's effect upon the earth. And he's thinking about a day of resurrection, that he's not going to lose anybody, he's not going to reject anybody, and he's going to raise them up at the last day. Three times he makes that same statement here in just a few verses. In verse 40, the second statement about the will of, of God. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have eternal, everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Gospel and simplicity right there. Every man, every woman, every child that believes, that sees Jesus, that believes what Jesus has done for them, they will have eternal life and they will be in the resurrection at the end. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. Verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. The prophet mean here is Isaiah 54. Jesus is referencing in this moment. It is written in the prophets that they shall all be taught of God. That was 54.13. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. We can have hope, anticipation, and expectation of eternal life because Jesus said it. And he came into this world and suffered and died upon the cross for you and I and rose again and has declared the end of this world is coming and all that is to come is true and sure. And he wants us to be there, but he also, most, most importantly, wants to be in that love relationship that he has for us forever. Let's have a song. <clears throat>